3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55am. It is the 5th of November and I'm Carly, your host for today. So first up, um, I just want to plug a few community announcements. So first up, I really encourage listeners to donate to the new uh, Japarong Protectors Fund. And you can find that by uh, going on to Chuffed. Uh, So yeah, for listeners, uh, the Japarong Heritage Protection Embassy uh, was established almost three years ago and there was a direction tree that was cut down last week um, and when that was happening a number of people were also arrested. So this Chuffed account is raising money to pay off the fines of people that were arrested last week. Um, Over 50 protectors were arrested, charged and fined, and in the 24 hours, over $250,000 in fines were issued by Victoria Police, and each of those uh, people were issued with $5,000 fines each under the COVID laws. So if you can chip in, um, that would be great. So just head to chuffs.org slash protect slash Japarong Protectors Fund. And we're also going to be posting that link um, on our Instagram as well. Now, some exciting news over in uh, at Tuesday Breakfast. So there's going to be a panel discussion that Tuesday Breakfast is hosting on Wednesday the 11th of November. And it's going to be live via Zoom. It's called Safety for Who? Abolitionist Perspectives on Criminalizing Coercive Control. So the guests are going to be Tabitha Lean, Georgia Mantle and Monique Hamid. And the conversation will be facilitated by George Maxwell. I am very keen to be listening into that conversation um, because I've been closely following Uh, the proposed uh, coercive control legislation that the New South Wales government are proposing to bring in. And I also want to do a shout out to IRL InfoShop, uh, the mutual aid fund there. And those folks have been delivering food boxes to people since March this year. And the group is hoping to keep delivering food boxes up until Christmas. Um, and so IRL InfoShop have created a GoFundMe fundraiser. So yeah, definitely um, try and chip in there. Just go to GoFundMe, IRL InfoShop Mutual Aid and Rent Fund. So IRL is a collectively run independent community space. And IRL believes in the benefits of an autonomous space that supports and deepens networks of solidarity. Um, and it costs about 
$1,500 to $2,000 a week um, to create the food boxes for about 60 families across so-called Melbourne. And the Mutual Aid Fund also is in partnership with Blackfella Mutual Aid and South East Mutual Aid. Um, and so if you can uh, chip in a little bit of money, then IRL Info Shop would greatly appreciate that support. All right, so now to the show. So today, first up, you're going to be hearing a conversation that Rosie has with May Kostakis about the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Network's upcoming event, Legitimising Repression, a discussion that looks at the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act and the proposed ASIO Amendment Bill 2020. May is the co-chairperson of PASA, PASA, Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. Then we hear Kristen O'Connell, spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, who speaks to Priya to demystify the government's proposal for a job, making, job maker hiring credit, and they discuss some of its shortcomings. Next up, you hear a conversation that I have with Jim Marlowe, journalist at Junkie, post-property journalist at Domain, who joins us to talk about housing in the pandemic. We discuss the Victorian government's COVID-19 response into homelessness, the challenges of renting throughout the pandemic, and the current property market in Victoria. Then lastly, we hear Michael Sean Fletcher, a Wiradjuri man and Associate Professor of Geography and Director of Research at Indigenous Knowledges Institute at the University of Melbourne, who joins us to discuss the recently released Bushfire Royal Commission Report and the importance of Indigenous land management practices. So another packed show for you listeners, and now it's time to head to the news with Kate Kelly. Good morning, I'm Kate Kelly and here are the top stories on 3CR this Thursday. Pilbara native title groups have spoken to the inquiry into the destruction of the ancient rock shelters Junkan Gorge, saying they are concerned about their own sacred sites. So the Senate inquiry into the destruction of 46,000-year-old rock shelters at Jungan Gorge in Western Australia has travelled to the area to meet with the PKKP traditional owners and to visit the site of the blast. So the committee arrived in WA um, this week and held a private meeting on Monday morning with the traditional owners, followed by a public hearing where they heard from Robe River Aboriginal Corporation as well as the owner of Pastoral Lease near Junkin Gorge. The CEO of Rove River Aboriginal Corporation, Sarah Slattery, told the inquiry that her people were concerned about the collective impact of mining. Not only Rio, we have everybody else out on country, she told the inquiry. We are worried about what will be left to, for our children and grandchildren. There will be nothing left for them, she said. And a petition um, that surpasses Australia's previous biggest e-petition to Parliament um, 
which was a 2019 demand for climate gen energy, has been declared. So the former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd's petition calling for a royal commission into the Murdoch media has reached a historic high of almost half a million signatures. The ex-Labor leader behind the campaign, Kevin Rudd, has been supported by a fellow Prime Minister from the Conservative side of politics, the Liberals' Malcolm Turnbull, who put his name to the petition on the Australian Parliament website. Murdoch has become a cancer, an arrogant cancer in our democracy, Rudd, who was the 26th Prime Minister, said when he launched the petition last month. The petition has been covered by international media, including the New York Times and the Jakarta Post, and has been signed by the stars Hugh Grant, who is another public opponent of the Murdochs, and Bette Midler. And more than 80% of workers want to continue working from home in some capacity, but unions believe more protections will be required to facilitate it without the discrimination or loss of paying conditions. So those were the results of a survey of 10,000 Australian employers conducted by unions, which found that 40% are working longer hours and 90% are not being paid overtime or penny rates for extra hours worked. The Australian Council of Trade Unions released a survey on Wednesday ahead of an executive meeting to adopt a Charter of Rights around working from home. Working from home will be one of the union, union movement's major demands as the government attempts to kick-start the economy out of the COVID-19 recession, along with its reconstruction plan proposing renewable energy investments and free childcare. And that's it for Thursday's headlines. Today I'm joined by May Katsakis. May is the co-chairperson of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. Welcome back to 3CR Thursday Breakfast, May. Yes, good morning. Good morning to everyone and uh, thank you for inviting me, Rosie. Absolute pleasure. So May, last time you were on the show was at the beginning of the pandemic, I believe, and you were talking about the lack of testing in the Philippines. And I just wanted you to get you to update listeners on how the pandemic is affecting the Philippines currently and the government's response to the crisis. Well, there is not much change in the Philippines at the moment. Um, there are already uh, more than 374,000 cases of uh, coronavirus and also 1,500 uh, cases per day. That's an average. The total debt to date is 7,053. That is uh, not very accurate according to the reports because uh, the testing or the recording of the debt is not actually, like if somebody died at home, it's not in the hospital, so the chances are it's not included in the data. And testing is not still like here, where testing is uh, rampant, or I mean, you know, everybody is tested. There, you have to report to be tested. You have to go to the hospital to be tested. And in some cases, you have to pay to be tested. So many Filipinos can't afford to pay to, to be tested. So what they do is they just, you know, they just uh, stay home. So that is one of the situations there in the Philippines. Thank you. And you also spoke last time you were on the show about Migrante Melbourne and the work you're doing to organise and support the Filipino community here in so-called Australia. And I was just wondering if you could update us after so many months of lockdown on how that project's going and how the international students and workers that you were supporting are faring after such a long time. Yes, uh, we continue from March, we continue with this what we call Damayan Migrante, which is a compassionate, uh, you know, or working together, you know, so we continue to deliver uh, 
uh, goods, like especially food and some basic necessities. Some of those students that we were already helping, they already uh, got jobs, and but some are still unemployed. So um, we don't only give them like support in food, we also help them uh, with uh, some, some um, uh, counseling. And uh, I don't know if you have heard about uh, our campaign at the moment uh, against uh, some uh, education provider because we just found out when we started in the Mayan, it is not only financial that they, they had a problem. They had a problem actually with abuses that are being, you know, um, abuses by the uh, uh, education provider, like um, uh, overcharging, overcharging, and uh, education, the, 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 the education that is being provided is not actually up to standard. There are overcrowding in the rooms and plenty of uh, different, different sort of exploitation that we have come across. So we are helping them. Uh, they filed, uh, we are helping them to file their complaints uh, with the ASQA and with the um, ombudsman. And also, we have a petition, you know, that this, uh, this provider, this is specifically Lawson College in Dandenong, that they have to be, that college has to be um, actually investigated because of that. So we come across many problems that the international student has been actually bearing for quite a long time, you know. That's in really important as well, isn't it? Like that... Um you know, through the kind of mutual aid and support that you're giving to them in terms of food actually like builds those communities and builds the connection that you can kind of then realize, oh yeah, we actually need to start organizing around these other issues as well. Only the international student we found out, also the temporary migrants, you know, mm -hmm. those uh, contract workers, we call them because they are, they are here because of work and they are on temporary visa. So they are not actually included in the essentials package, not the job seeker, not the job keeper. So they are actually left behind. <laughs> so Absolutely. the campaign of no one left behind is very true because these people con contribute not only to the income of the Australian uh, you know, um, government, it's also, they also pay taxes. They pay very high tax because they don't have this uh, free, you know, the first certain thousands. Um, they don't have that, so they have to pay the higher, uh, you know, uh, range of tax. So they contribute to the Australian economy. And so just to begin talking about the Anti-Terrorism Act in the Philippines. So in July this year, Duterte signed the Anti-Terrorism Act into law. And as I understand it, then some implementing rules and regulations have been added to kind of clarify the application of the act. But could you outline for listeners what the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act is and what powers it gives to the state and maybe a bit about the political context in which the act has emerged? Yes, the act was actually approved in time of pandemic which is, you know, it, it is, you know, it, when, when the government is supposed to be actually giving attention to the health crisis, the Philippine government rushed the approval of this act. And this is actually very undemocratic. It sort of infringes the rights of uh, Filipinos, all Filipinos. And uh, like um, how the, the, the terrorism is defined, it is very big, big you know. Um, so even just a plan, a plan of like, um, we are going to have a petition or we are going to have a rally that is, uh, and that, that can be considered as a terrorist act. Um, 
the safeguard that is said to be in the bill claimed to protect the people's freedom, but it is actually weakened because of the vague definition of the anti-terror act, I mean, of terrorism. And uh, another, another, another very worrying is the, the, the formation or the establishment of anti-terrorism council. This council is composed of people that are working under the presidential cabinet. So that means that they are not actually uh, independent. So, and, and this council have actually the power to this declare or prescribe any group or any person as terrorist without, without the court, you know, without the, you know, chance of being heard in the court. So if, if anyone in, the, in this council just don't like me and they can just tell me, oh, oh they can just uh, uh, signify or declare me as a terrorist, then I am subject already to the anti-terrorism act. So this, this is actually very, very um, dangerous. And also the law authorizes police or military to arrest anyone without any warrant. And they can be uh, detained for 24 days. And just lately, the um, implementing rules and regulations were, was also approved, you know. And um, supposedly, well, what the government is saying that this implementing rules and regulation is going to actually, uh, it's like a safety, you know, <laughs> a safety in such a way that people, you know, will not be exploited by this anti-terrorism act, but actually it is even worse. So um, apparently according to the NUPL president or the National Union of People's Lawyers, this this uh, implementing rules and regulation contains worrying provisions that supply, extend, enlarge, and even add to the provisions of the law without a statutory basis. So some people are saying that it is like giving the police a blank check where they can list any person they choose to arrest. It and also I legalizes the long-running terror tagging. You know the, the red tagging, terror tagging. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the red tagging. So could you tell us a little bit about that strategy, red tagging, and how it is linked to the Anti-Terrorism Act? Yes, um, there are lots of uh, individual as well as organizations, legal organizations that are tagged as terrorists because they said that they are members or they are linked to the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army. So, um, and this is just on the basis that what the Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army are fighting for is the same or similar to what these legal organizations actually are fighting for or are, um, you know, are, are um, campaigning for. Say for industrialization, say for uh, um, stop the human rights violation, because they have similar, you know, uh, issues that they are campaigning for. So they are told they are tagged as terrorists. They are tagged as either members or supporters of Communist Party of the Philippines and the New People's Army. In the Philippines, most of those activists who are killed, they were red tagged first before yeah. they were killed. It's like, giving, it's like giving the police or, you know, the military like a, a, a license to, hi, this is a terrorist killing. 
it's like that, you know. And May, can I ask you about um, the opposition to the Anti-Terrorism Act in the Philippines? You were saying the activists have been petitioning the Supreme Court to stop the implementation of the Act. Um, and I saw that that's been happening, continuing since July up until right up until October and November. So could you talk about what, what they're asking for and whether they're likely to get it um, in terms of stopping this Act? And are there other forms of resistance that activists are using um, yeah, against the Act? Actually, the demand, the demand of, of uh, the activists uh, is to scrap this act, to totally scrap, because there is already a Philippine Security, Human Security Act, or Human Security Bill, which is already an anti-terrorism act, just the same as Ashu Bill here, you know. So, so the, the, the call of those, you know, of the, of the activists, and not only the activists, there are already many people opposing this uh, act. Uh, even the Integrated Bar of the Philippines, which is an association of the lawyers, they have already said that this act is very anti, this is against the constitution. So they are calling for that. But in spite of that, actually the petition started uh, even before the, the opposition to this act, even before Duterte has signed the, the, uh, the bill into a law in July 3, there, was a, there has already been a lot of campaigns and petitions. But in spite of that, it was just totally ignored. And now with this IRR or the implementing rules and regulations, they just totally ignore or just don't listen to the clamor of the people. So it actually sort of concretize or unite a lot of people, not only progressive, not only the one they call the left, even the people that used to be in the right. There are lots of opposition to, the, to this act. But I think the, the government of the Philippines is hell-bent in ensuring or in trying to, you know, to end the Communist Party of the Philippines and the, the revolution, because there is an ongoing revolution in the Philippines. Yeah, so, mate, um, this event that you're holding tomorrow night, Friday night, called, called Legitimizing Repression, is a discussion of the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act and also so-called Australia's proposed ASIO Amendment Bill. And while obviously there are differences between the two contexts, I think some of what you were talking about with this use of sort of vague terms and broad reach is one of the things that is called into question about both bills. You know, who can be surveilled, who can be detained, who can be questioned under these types of legislations. Could you tell us a bit more about the event on Friday night and what, what you've got planned? Yes, we have actually very good speakers. Uh, uh, both the speaker from the Philippines, uh, they, they used to be in the Congress. And the reason why we sort of marry these both bills, because we actually receive uh, one of our sister organizations, we are actually petitioning, uh, uh, asking the Philippine, I mean the Australian government to stop military aid to the Philippines. Stop the military aid because we believe that with the help of Australian government and Australian military, they are helping enable the Philippine military to continue with the human rights violations. So then the, the reply, that, and then we mentioned the Anti-Terrorism Act. Look at the Anti-Terrorism Act. It is very, it's against the constitution. It is going, going to violate the human rights of the Filipino people. And the reply said that actually the Australian government helped in writing the Anti-Terrorism Act of the Philippines. So that worries us, you know, and, and then the ASHU bill, the amendment to ASHU bill, that, which is proposed and it was actually, I think it was tabled in the Australian parliament in May, 
PASA or Philippine Australian Solidarity Association wrote actually to the Prime Minister because of the concern of the provisions in this proposed amendment bill. I am not quite sure whether it is already discussed and it is already passed, but when we, we wrote, we wrote uh, to the, to the uh, Australian government in September, we are very worried of some of the provisions of the ASHU bill. I, I will just mention maybe a few of this, like the ASHU would be allowed to question children as young as 14 years of age. Okay, that is in the proposed ASHU uh, bill amendment. And then um, the attorney general would be able to issue certain warrants only in emergency situations. So the attorney general can issue a warrant. The bill proposes expansion of the powers of search and seizure in connection with questioning warrants. So they uh, ask you or, you know, whoever is authorized can actually search your house. And also, it can also, uh, the power to use surveillance and tracking devices without external authority. So if you are a suspect, they will track your mobile, they will put surveillance in your house without any authority. So it is just like the issue, it's like the APA, we just a suspect, you know, so they can yeah. actually, you know, surveil you. Absolutely. And also, it also, they, the, the bill proposes limitation on the person's right to have a lawyer of their choice present while they are being questioned. It sounds like it's going to be a really, really important conversation on Friday night because you can see like there's a lot to learn here in so-called Australia from the experience in the Philippines and vice versa about resisting and, um, yeah, advocating against these kinds of legislation that have such a broad reach and just give so much power to the state. Um, thank you so much for joining us, May. We've just run out of time today, but it was really, really excellent to speak to you and we'll make sure to link both to the event and to uh, Damayan Magrante um, fundraisers and everything. Thank you, Rosie. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, and that was a conversation I had with May Katsakis, who's the chairperson of the Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association. And May joined me to discuss PASA's event coming up tomorrow night called Legitimising Repression, which is a discussion of the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act 2020 and the proposed ASIO Amendment Bill 2020. To find out more about that event, you can search on Facebook, just search Legitimising Repression, Philippines-Australia Solidarity Association, and you'll find it. And we'll also link to that on our website. Stay tuned to 855am or stream live on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR 855am. Next up, you'll hear an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Kristen joins me to demystify the government's proposal for a job maker hiring credit and to discuss some of its shortcomings. Hi, Kristen. Thanks very much for taking the time to speak with me. Hi, Priya. Thanks so much for having us. No worries at all. So could you start by letting listeners know a little bit more about yourself and the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? Yeah, I am an activist. I um, have been involved in the union now for uh, since about the beginning of the year. Um, it's a really uh, been a really fun uh, movement to be involved in, particularly at this time. It's been very difficult for us and for our members with everything that has changed through the pandemic. Um, we help people understand and assert their rights in the welfare system. That's because the welfare system in Australia is really punitive. It's very hard to survive. 
in addition to living on half the poverty line in normal times. People have to engage with job agencies, which are very abusive and harmful and um, cause people's health to deteriorate. So that's what we do for our members. We provide lots of support in that respect. And we also do advocacy and we push the media to treat people with dignity. We push the government to um, treat people fairly as well. And yesterday we appeared in the Senate uh, to tell them why we want them to do a better job of supporting unemployed people out of the recession. Yeah, thank you. The devil works hard, but the Australian Unemployed Workers Union works harder. Um, so as you mentioned this past Monday, the Senate Economics Legislation Committee, is that right, held a public hearing as part of their inquiry into the Economic Recovery Package, Jobmaker Hiring Credit Amendment Bill 2020. Um, so in short, Jobmaker Hiring Credit. So what is the Jobmaker Hiring Credit and who stands to gain from this bill? The Jobmaker Hiring Credit is a piece uh, of a scheme that the government says will incentivize unemployed people to find work, which we say is a joke really, because no unemployed person will get a single extra dollar to uh, give them a reason to try and find a job. People who are living on half the poverty line already have an incentive to try and find a job. Unfortunately, there aren't many jobs to be found. So they're saying that they're gonna spend $4 billion and initially they announced it would create 450,000 jobs. We now know from Treasury that actually they only expect to create 45,000 additional jobs, which means more than 400,000 of the jobs that the government will subsidise will be jobs that would have existed anyway. That's people who businesses were already planning to hire and had already had the resources to be able to hire. So it's going to, at this stage, with the way they've designed it, it's got lots of potential to benefit shareholders, just like the JobKeeper program did. Um, it's got lots of potential to make huge difference to the profits of very large organisations that have the resources to manipulate their workforce, to optimise um, how much money they can make out of it. And it's not going to create many jobs. It's certainly not going to provide much help to the types of businesses that probably do want to create meaningful work. So smaller businesses that actually want to give people stable employment. It's not enough money to help them do that. So yeah, it's, in short, um, we think that their plan to solve unemployment with this scheme is, um, you know, really just going to funnel more public money into rich people's pockets. Which seems to be a real theme in this economic recovery package. Um, so I'm aware that the union made a very comprehensive submission to this inquiry and also, as I mentioned, gave evidence. So what are some of your major concerns with the JobMaker hiring credit and how might some of these changes operate if the bill is passed? Okay, so we have so many concerns with the way the government has designed this bill. First problem is none of the rules about how it's going to work are in the bill. So, you know, the Treasurer made lots of decisions during the pandemic about who he wanted to include and exclude from JobKeeper, and he had to keep changing the rules to achieve that. So people might have heard that universities were excluded from JobKeeper, which meant massive job losses. Tens of thousands of people lost work because of that decision. And by leaving this in rules, uh, the government is giving itself the power to do that again. So it's a bit boring and wonky, but we really want the rules to be in the law, not just to be at the Treasurer's discretion. 
We also think it's a little bit of a joke that they want to hand this money out without telling anyone who's got it or how it's been used. So we think they have to require any business that accesses it to A, tell the government they've accessed it and, you know, in a way that allows them to publish information and to say how much of their workforce is casual. Like how many workers who worked for them before they got these hiring credits still have work? Like how has it impacted the way they operate their business and how it has it, in our view, harmed workers? That's what we want to be able to find out. So in terms of how it will actually affect people, um, we think that it's really unfair at the moment because it says you'll only be able to get a subsidy if you're under the age of 35 and the subsidy is different based on whether you're under 30 or under 35. So they've excluded 57% of people on unemployment payments. And we know that from past recessions, it is really difficult for older folks to get back into the workforce. And many people never work again or never work in their field again once there's a recession. So even though, um, you know, the government likes to go on about the lifelong cost to younger workers if uh, we're locked out of the workforce in, you know, in our 20s, for example, um, they're ignoring the huge human cost for people, um, particularly in their 40s and up, um, if they aren't able to get back into the workforce quickly. So the other thing is this ignores the needs of people who were unemployed before COVID. It will make it possible for businesses to profit from hiring people who are the ones they would have hired anyway, because there's this thing called shuffling where people will just enter the unemployment system and then they're the first ones to be brought out. And this scheme should be saying, well, those people will get work anyway. We want to make sure that the jobs that are created, if the scheme was actually going to create jobs, are filled by people who were struggling to find work before and give the extra support that they need to be able to get a job. Um, it's also just going to be open to so much abuse by employers. They've put no protections in place to stop employers from reducing the amount of work that existing workers have. So if you're like a 40 year old worker in a supermarket, you can have your hours dropped from 30 hours a week to 10 hours a week. And then they can hire a young worker who is eligible for this scheme, put them on for 20 hours a week and get the 200 bucks for that. It's also really discriminatory um, for, at the younger end as well, because at the moment, um, younger workers, say between 16 and 20, are really screwed over by the system because they don't get award wages. They get a percentage of award wages for the same work that anyone 21 and over gets does. So at the moment, that means that it might cost $268 to employ a 16-year-old for 20 hours a week in a fast food restaurant. If they get the 200 bucks, that person's going to cost them $68 a week. So, of course, they're going to hire 16-year-olds more than 19-year-olds as much as they possibly can. And if you're 21, you buggered because they're going to try and fill their workforce with the youngest possible people. So it's actually going to make it really, really hard and put people in, like divide people and put people in competition with each other in a way that isn't helpful for, you know, job creation but does make things really hard if you're, you know, you know, the number of barriers they're stacking against people is just really extraordinary. Um, they're also not doing nothing to prevent businesses that have engaged in massive, massive wage theft from accessing this 
I'm really disgusted that casinos will be able to get this. They cause social harm. And when the new casino opens in Sydney, they're going to employ 2,000 workers. And we think lots of those workers will now be hired in order to access this scheme. So there's just so many problems with it. I actually haven't listed them all because it is so boring. But people, if they're interested in the, the number of holes we've been able to pick in this scheme as it's currently designed, they are very welcome to go and read our submission. So, yeah, from what you've outlined, it really seems like there's no incentive uh, for workplaces to provide uh, to provide a better working conditions. Yeah, I think that is the biggest one is the fact that this is going to really undermine the labor market and accelerate the fracturing of work that we've been seeing for decades now, really, that has made it harder and harder for people who have a job to survive. So another huge problem with this scheme is that it will subsidize jobs that won't even pay enough to get people off an unemployment payment. So you can have a job, your boss is getting money to be to employ you, and you're still stuck, stuck on job seeker, doing mutual obligations, uh, you know, getting paid when you add up your job seeker and your wage still below the poverty line. It's, you know, it's ludicrous to think that the money here is not being spent on helping people to live or helping to increase wages or helping to give people job security. It's being given directly to bosses. And the job security factor is a huge one. We have asked in our submission for them to either only make this scheme available for permanent jobs. So they can be part-time jobs, but jobs that give people security. Because if you're a permanent worker, your boss just can't fire you or cut your hours. Or alternatively, if they want to leave it open to casual workers, which it is at the moment, to say that the level of employment, they've said it has to be a minimum of 20 hours a week, that the employer has to continue that level of employment for a period of time after they stop being subsidised. Because it doesn't help anyone if they get a shitty, insecure job for a year and they're left in the same position in a year as they are now. The government is talking about lifelong effects of unemployment and none of that will be helped if you know you just get a short time of bad work that gives you no security no ability to plan for your future still leaves you in financial stress still leaves you exposed to all the all of the harms of the system so we think there's a really big structural problem here that is going to further casualize the workforce going to create more jobs that don't pay enough because why would you hire one person at 30 or 40 hours a week when you can hire two people at 20 hours a week and double the amount of money that you're getting from the government. So again, I haven't really been comprehensive here because it's, it, I could speak about this for a very long time, but we think it's going to create a lot of bad jobs that leave people distressed and not able to really um, survive easily with their salary or their wage. Yeah. And I mean, as somebody with a sort of passing familiarity with social security um, policy and legislation, it really seems like um, this is quite a perverse scheme when you think about the sort of welfare conditionality, mutual obligations, those kinds of concerns where um, the whole rationale for programs like that are that people are, uh, you know, not choosing to participate in work when obviously we know the case is very different. And maintaining a huge underemployed workforce appears to be, you know, one of the one of the only logical outcomes of a scheme like this. Um, so do you want to speak to any other concerns around um, the overall reshaping of the workforce and industrial relations that this bill might have? 
Yeah, it's clear that this is designed to facilitate the government's objectives with its industrial relations reforms. This is a very easy way for them to achieve the types of things they want without yet having won um, changes to legislation that they are still going to push through to make it easier for bosses to fire people, um, to have so-called flexibility in the workforce. One thing we find really frustrating is that flexibility is always for the employer. It's never for the employee. And obviously your employer having flexibility means you have uncertainty. Obviously we'd rather those tables be turned uh, to see employees have control over their life um, and not have to feel threatened um, with losing work if they can't be as flexible as their boss wants them to be. So yeah, this is absolutely going to make it easier for bosses to do that to people. They'll have a higher percentage of their workforce um, in that situation of just not having certainty, um, not having any ability to know how much work they're going to have. And another big problem with this scheme actually is just that you don't have to have worked consistently 20 hours a week to be boss to get the subsidy. So for example, over Christmas, you might get 40 or 50 hours of casual work a week and the boss will get 200 bucks. Come January, for the next two months, you might have no hours and you're still going to be subsidised. So while you've got zero hours, they'll still be getting $200 a week. So you can see, you know, you used the word perverse and we used the word perverse in our submission because there is so much about this that if you actually look at it from the perspective of helping the unemployed people who, as you say, apparently we don't want to work, um, it, it doesn't do any of that. It does make things harder. It leaves more, it will leave more people on JobSeeker than it would if they actually attempted to create meaningful, stable jobs. Um, as I said earlier, poverty payments mean that people already have about as much incentive as you could possibly hope them to have to get off a payment. And the government's $4 billion that they're gonna spend on this would actually be enough to give people job seeker income support at the rate that they have had it for the last six months, which is at the poverty line of about $550 a week which from what we've heard from our members, from unemployed people all over the country, has been enough to help them survive, to be able to pay their bills, to be able to pay the rent, to get the medical care they need and to eat fresh fruit and vegetables. And so for the first time, people have felt equipped and confident to look for work. The best thing that the government could do with this $4 billion would be to support people, to make them well enough to find a job. And of course, that money being in people's hands would have would mean their spending, which would achieve the government's aim of actually generating economic activity, which would fuel jobs. We are just explaining conservative talking points to the government here. And what's really interesting is that many, many economists have said the same thing. They've said it is not the right decision to cut income support. It will hurt the economy to do that. And there aren't a lot of economists saying this scheme's amazing and will solve things. The most positive thing that we're seeing um, economists say is that this is good but you need to do so much more this is four billion dollars a lot of people are saying you need to spend tens of billions of dollars more to actually achieve um, what you're what you're looking for and finally on whether people want to work or not um, or why we're on unemployment payments the government says its target is six percent unemployment that's going to leave a million people on these payments that is a choice the government is making to leave people on payments if the government wants people to be on payments and does not want to make sure there are jobs for people to go into, it is 
unacceptable that they say, we're going to punish you for being on those payments. It's not a choice. Yeah, it feels like the only choice here is really, you know, at the level of government kind of making these decisions about keeping people in precarious work, um, you know, keeping people in conditions that are economically depressed when there's no serious investment in job creation in areas where people are asking for them. Um, so I guess to, to sort of wrap up, um, what do you hope comes out of this inquiry and how can people get informed and involved with regard to some of these changes? Yeah, um, what we would like to see out of the inquiry specifically is changes that improve this legislation. One thing we said in our submission is a hiring subsidy is not going to solve the problems of unemployment in this country. The government has chosen the wrong tool. We accept that they are going to go ahead with a subsidy and therefore we want to see it targeted better to help people who are long-term unemployed, who do have complex barriers to work and make sure that the people who are going to get a job most easily aren't the ones that are being subsidised. We would like to see, as I said, uh, lots of changes, including targeting it to smaller businesses, increasing the amount of subsidy so it's easier for those businesses to hire people if they insist on giving money to businesses rather than people. Um, so what it, what it will mean if it goes through either in its current form or in a slightly amended form um, that is that people need to understand what... I guess, advantages and disadvantages they're going to face when looking for work. So if you're a person who is eligible for this scheme, which means that you're between the ages of 16 and 35, and you have to have been receiving, or no, not even receiving, you have to have been on Job Seeker or Youth Allowance Other or a parenting payment for at least one month out of the last three months. As you can see, they made it as convoluted as possible. And just to clarify for anyone out there who's not sure whether that would cover them, if you were on JobSeeker payment receiving $0 because you were earning other income, you will be captured by this scheme. You will be able to have your boss access the subsidy. If you were unemployed, but you weren't on a JobSeeker payment because you were living on savings, you will not be able to get this subsidy. So again, just very weird and perverse ways of dividing people. Um, so that will mean, you know, if you're going out and looking for work, you can talk about your eligibility for this and you can use that to your advantage. It obviously means it'll be really hard for people over the age of 35 or who have been unemployed and not on a payment um, to, to sort of argue that they are the best person for the job. And that's, you know, even more than in normal times going to have to be so heavily emphasised that you could get this $200 a week for a year, but actually I'm the right person um, to, to go for. I mean, there aren't enough jobs anyway, but people are going to be forced to look for them. And as I said, people want work. People are going to have to probably be trying to think what types of jobs they're applying for, jobs that maybe aren't heavily geared towards younger workers. And, you know, it's a really terrible situation people are going to be put in. But unfortunately, that's the reality at this stage. We, one of the amendments we have asked for is to remove the age discrimination um, and to rebalance the scheme so that it doesn't so dramatically disadvantage people 21 and over. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's something that people should pay attention to. I know it is boring for many people, but it's got such huge implications and it's really a key plank of the government's attempts to recover the economy. So we should all be informed and know what's going on. The inquiry homepage is on the Parliament House website. 
if you don't want to go to that extreme, you can follow um, us on social media where we're talking about it. Um, we are Oz Unemployment on Twitter. That's A-U-S Unemployment. Um, on Facebook, you can just search the union name. You can obviously join the union at our website. So um, it's free to join. And if you're in waged work, you can join as a solidarity member. Um, we'll be sending updates about how this will operate as we know more. The inquiry will hand down its report on Friday. Yeah, so if people wanna know how it's gone, what the inquiry has found, they can look that up. There'll be plenty of media about it too. That's a little bit easier. Um, and then the government is planning to bring the legislation on before the end of the year. So we will have a sense of how this is all going to fall and we're going to keep lobbying really hard. We're hoping to get more time with senators this week to tell, to make the case for the changes that we want and try to get this scheme to benefit unemployed people more than it will at the moment. Yeah, thank you. And you, you really covered my, uh, my last question, which was where can people find out more about the Australian Unemployed Workers Union? And again, we will be, um, you know, tagging uh, your accounts and we'll chuck a link to um, your website in our link tree on our Instagram. That's at 3CR Thursday Breakfast on Instagram. So you can find out more of the work of the union. And yeah, I mean, I just want to say thank you so much for all of your advocacy, for all the work that you do. And um, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Priya. We will keep doing it until there is justice. That was an interview with Kristen O'Connell, who's a spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. Kristen joined me to discuss the government's proposal for a jobmaker hiring credit and to talk about some of the shortcomings of the bill. You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And today I'm joined by Jim Marlowe, who is currently a journalist with Junkie and has previously worked for Domain as a property journalist. Today, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 and housing. Welcome, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with homelessness. <laughs> so yep. in March this year, the Victorian government began um, to address homelessness amidst the pandemic by funneling money into temporary accommodation. So for many people, this meant um, being housed in hotels and also rooming houses. So in March, um, the Victorian government were boasting about immediately housing 2,000 people who were previously experiencing homelessness. Um, but as COVID-19 restrictions are now eased in Victoria, um, there are a lot of community concerns about how people are going to be transitioning out of temporary accommodation into more long-term housing properties. So what are your thoughts about the Victorian government's COVID-19 response into homelessness? Yeah, I think it's fairly good response you know you don't want to look a gift horse in the mouth in the mouth right and you sort of don't want to uh, criticize things that are pretty in principle good um but i i do think that these concerns about the uh i guess the long-term future of these people that they've been uh, temporarily housing is the is probably um my main concern with it because it's all well and good to sort of get people off the, the streets when it's a public health risk and it may affect um other people but um, for these people then to sort of uh, be in a position where they may lose um, the, the, their housing or support that they had during the pandemic just because the pandemic's over, I think it's not really a, a good position to be in. And uh, one of the, the key problems with this is, um, of course, the, the lack of um, public and social housing, um, you know, despite being begged to fix it for, for years and years. Um, my, the first uh, state budget I ever reported on um, was, was actually, that was one of the key things I was looking for. And I worked it out and they only were building um, something like 
um, in that year, which was 2018 to 2019, I believe, um, they were only building uh, something like or like 2% of the, the public housing uh, or, you know, social housing or just new dwellings needed to actually house all the people on the, on the public housing waiting list. So, um, you know, this is a problem that's been around for a long time. And even in the face of a pandemic, um, the, the amount of money that they um, allocated to uh, physically build houses is actually quite small. It's in the hundreds of millions, um, about, about double the spend. Um, and this is over years as well. It's not just over this, this one year. Um, it's, it's basically doubled the spend that they were going to do over a four year period from 2018. Um, which was only going to build um, uh, 2% of the houses we need to actually house the, the homeless and the, the people in precarious housing and the people who need it, basically. Um, so uh, while it is all well and good to get homeless people off the streets during the pandemic, I think, um, you know, dealing with the, the challenge of um, finding uh, permanent housing for them is, uh, is something that the government isn't very good at and, and still uh, hasn't uh, really actually addressed it. Um, the numbers that they announced um, uh, is something like they say, like they're spending like I think it's like two lots of two billion on 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 housing in um, different ways, but um, when you drill down into the numbers, it's a lot of money for for organisations and um, you know programs, but not a lot for actual houses, which is what we need. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my greatest concern is that, I mean, the Victorian government was so quick to house you know those two thousand people who are experiencing homelessness for like public safety for everyone else, not necessarily caring about those people who were on the street. Um, And I think that if the government really did care, then they would have in March actually started investing more in transitional housing, short-term accommodation, but instead, yeah, just found this temporary fix. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there is a lot of, um, uh, there's not a lot of votes rather in fixing homelessness. I don't think a lot of people, um, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the, the Labor Party or the major parties don't perceive it as being something people care about. Um, so I just don't think that they, there's a political appetite to actually deal with it. Mm. So let's talk about renting. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I myself am a renter and I know that a lot of my friends have also experienced a lot of stress um, renting throughout this COVID-19 restrictions in NAM. Um, So, yeah, the Victorian government, they did bring in a rent relief grant of up to $3,000 for tenants that continued to suffer from financial hardship. However, the onus was on tenants um, to negotiate with their landlords to see a reduction in rent. And, yeah, like can you talk a bit more about some of the stories that you've been hearing from renters? Yeah, this is a little bit of a... um, uh this is a little bit of a fraught area because a lot of um while a lot of renters who have been vocal about their problems um have had it really bad but um a lot of renters are also not seeking out um help so it sort of makes it hard to say that you know this is a a huge issue um but what we did know about um you know, renters and people who couldn't pay their rent um, at the beginning of the pandemic uh, was that a lot of these people are working in hospitality or the arts. Um, you know, they're, they're typically young people. So, you know, these are all things that we know, um, uh, all areas that we know were particularly hard hit by the the coronavirus crisis. So, um the, the government approach to sort of just saying that, uh, you know, you need to negotiate with your landlord just wasn't something that was working out super well. And I, and I personally think that a lot of people didn't actually go and seek out the help that they needed. Um, because, I mean, even myself, I'm a renter. Um, I had to take a pay cut, but, you know, I have a much better salary and I still was able to afford to pay my rent. Um, you know, one of, two of my housemates, um, one of them uh, lost their job entirely. So they had no income. Um, they almost had to leave. 
the other um, uh, ended up on JobKeeper and she's um, just had a uh, pay cut or two months ago, actually now she had a pay cut. Um, so yeah, like we didn't ask for help, but we, we obviously, um, you know, we were within our rights to, because we had lost a, a fair bit of money um, coming into the house. So I, I tend to think that a lot of people didn't actually seek out the help that they needed because it wasn't really done in a structured way. Um, and they could be confident that they would be backed up because um, when it comes to getting these reductions, um, the, the way to do it, if you can't just reach an agreement with your landlord, if they're not um, eminently reasonable um, is to go through CAB. And that's a, a long, slow process. And you're still on the hook for the rent that you 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 um you are supposed to pay before the agreements reach right so that creates a problem where like if you have no money coming in uh you know there's some ex- expectation that you still have to pay rent another problem with this is that uh it probably could have been avoided if the state government or the federal government had just mandated a rent decrease across the country um this is something that i um one of my favorite housing academics um chris martin was uh advocating for because he sort of saw it as uh removing the need um for people to feel like they were being hard done by because you know landlords when i say people i mean landlords um feeling that they were hard done by because they couldn't um you know for whatever reason uh extract the like you know the the wages of their their tenants because everyone um you know has the the same decrease um and it also uh provides a, a much more secure safety net for tenants because uh they know that they are in there's no gray area they just have to pay reduced rent um so that would have been a more ideal outcome and uh, it would have prevented a lot of the issues that we're seeing now because people can still get, uh, you know, told that they need to leave a house for not paying rent, but they just can't be physically evicted. So the way the mechanism works in um, Victoria, I'm not sure about the other states, but it's it's that the VCAT will say, okay, you need to pay rent and you need to get out, but they won't give the warrant of possession uh, to the police to actually physically turf you out. So in effect, um, you are evicted, but in, um, in, uh, in effect... Uh, like technically you are evicted, but um, in effect, uh, they, they can't do it. So it still leaves you with something, you know, sort of hanging over your head. So, yeah, it's uh, not the world's greatest yeah. response, but um, yeah, I, I think it um, that's sort of how we've seen it play out. And um, some of the, the worst um, uh, sort of ex- examples of this has just been um, landlords uh, calling up and abusing their tenants for, for asking for, for um, rent decreases. They've also then turned around and said to um, their tenants, well, uh, we're going to kick you out now because we need to fix something that um, you've been asking us to fix for, for years, as long as you've been in the house. Um, so, you know, things like that, um, have we've sort of seen landlords let's take advantage of their position as um you know housing providers and uh and use that to try to continue to extract um wages from their their tenants during the middle of a pandemic um and if they can't do that they um they uh, tend to chuck a tanty and um, try to boot them out. However, you know, landlords are suffering too. You know, they might have lost their, their jobs or anything like that. But there has been very little recognition of the fact that um tenants don't have any assets and uh you know, they're, they're in a much more uh, precarious position um, or, you know, they may not have any assets. Some people do rent vests, but, um, you know, they're in a much more precarious position and, and there hasn't been much recognition from the government's uh, landlords or uh, people who advocate for landlords, which is um, incredibly disappointing in my view. Mm. Yeah, you actually kind of touched on something there that happened with our household where um, we had somebody move out of our house. So none of us actually experienced financial hardship, but then we had to increase paying rent because somebody in our house had moved out. Um, But then we didn't actually speak with our landlord because um, you can be evicted if the landlord was going to like sell the house or move in. And so we were like, oh, no. (laughs) 
yeah so we yeah just didn't approach our landlord Mm. Mm. it's it's a scary thing right like um i have a i even have a good relationship with my landlord i have his phone number and if i need something fixed i can call him and get him to come fix it but i just don't feel comfortable um sort of putting my cards on the table and being like hey man like can you um can you give us a rent reduction because i just don't know how he'll react he might be drawing an income from it and he will feel personally you know sort of like hard done by rather than you know just paying off his mortgage so it's it's hard you just don't know what to do So lastly, Mm. let's talk about the property market. Um, So, yeah, with the easing of restrictions of COVID-19, I remember looking at the roadmaps and I remember one of the key points that the Andrews government said was that people can now actually visit homes for, like, inspection for auctions. And I was like, okay, great, good to know. Um, So... (laughs) that's happening and also the federal government has added an additional 10,000 places to the first homeowners deposit scheme. So I just want to know is this the perfect time for young professionals to buy their first home or is everybody just really struggling and moving back in with their parents? Look there are like yes if you have um, intergenerational wealth or you have your deposit saved like I would say now is a potentially good time to try to get into the market. Um, lots of first home buyers were doing that during the uh, during the lockdown period. People who were you know sort of desperate to buy or you know just uh, were kind of fine with buying their first house and not having seen it. Like you know those sort of people, um, and also there were people just sort of settling as well, coming back to properties that they looked at uh, initially, and uh, were like, oh maybe not. But then as time went on, they sort of changed their minds. So yeah, it kind of was a good time to get into the market, but um, I, looking at the clearance rates now and you know, how many things have sold um, and, and how much is selling. So we're starting to see like, you know, hundreds of houses go to auction each weekend again, which is, um, you know, it's not normal for this time of year. Usually there'll be more than a thousand each weekend, um, but the, it's getting to a sort of a, an, an amount of auctions where the clearance rate is actually indicative of how the market is going. And the clearance rate last weekend uh, on Saturday was, 74%, which is actually incredibly high. And anything above about 60% is um, is uh, correlated with uh, double digit price increases. So at this point, we're looking like we're, we're on track to seeing like huge price rises in the property market because of all the pent up demand from the lockdown. So that's bad if you're a, 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 um, a first home buyer. And if you can wait, my, um, my advice would probably be to wait um, just because uh, it takes a lot of time for people to become comfortable with the idea of selling their house and bring their property onto the market. So there may be more houses up for sale later on, which will dilute the pool and then sort of ease this sort of like ra- potential rapid price rise that we're seeing with um, with the high clearance rates um, and, the, and the low number of auctions. So uh, that's what a lot of pundits were saying to me before lockdown ended. But uh, you just can't trust the um, Australian property markets, in my experience. Every time it looks like things are bad, um, it's sprung back incredibly quickly. And people have been like, oh, it probably won't be that, you know, rah, rah, rah. But, um, you know, unless we had the coronavirus crisis, um, property prices would have continued to just sort of shoot upwards. Um, So, yeah, it's not a great time to buy a house. It's ridiculous that even in the middle of a recession, um, property prices continue to rise. But property prices have been decoupled from, you know, the, the larger economy and the fundamentals or what we, what we think are the fundamentals of property for some time now. 
Um, so, you know, wages uh, continue to stay flat, but um, property prices will, you know, skyrocket because of the easy availability of debt and also the prevalence of investors in the market. So the whole thing is completely screwed. And the fact that we're watching it, uh, you know, go up as, uh, you know, hundreds, uh, sorry, was it millions of people who were made unemployed by the coronavirus crisis, um, you know, is just while, you know, all, all that is going on in the background of the economy to me is completely absurd. And uh, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I mean, you talked about debt. And I think all throughout the pandemic, I was just thinking, surely the economy is going to crash, but it's because everybody is actually in so much debt that I think it's going to take a little while for a full recession to hit. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, you know, until uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker, um, you know, the extended levels of support from the federal government are taken away, um, we're just not going to know what the impact on the economy is. It could be much worse than we think, um, you know, once we come off it all um, next year. or uh, and, and the same for evictions. Once the eviction moratorium ends in Victoria, it might get a lot worse because there might be a lot of renters who, uh, you know, just can't afford to pay the rent debt that they've accrued. Yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. But yeah, I mean, maybe I can interview in a few months' time, <laughs> and you can yeah, give us yeah. an update. <laughs> Look, I'd be happy to. Um, I like. I would love to be proven wrong, but um, you know, just like as far as I can see it, the writing's on the wall for um a bit of pain for you know homeowners and renters and just everyone really. Mm. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Jumalo, for joining us on (laughs) 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, 3CR listeners. I am Listic from your sister station, Radio Skid Row in Sydney. On top of everything 2020 has thrown at us, at Radio Skid Row, we are now facing our toughest challenge yet, and we need your support. For the first time in 30 years, the Community Broadcasting Foundation did not award us any funding for operations. From our perspective, these funding cuts are a contradiction of the core values of community radio to give the people a voice. We have launched a huge new fundraising campaign, which is running until December. By donating to Radio Skid Row, you are securing the future of radical grassroots media by and for the community. Go to startsomegood.com slash Radio Skid Row 2020 and donate now. You're on 3CR 855 AM and this is the Thursday Breakfast Show. Up next, you'll hear an interview with Michael Sean Fletcher, who's a Rogery man and associate professor of geography and director of research at the Indigenous Knowledges Institute at the University of Melbourne. Michael joins us to discuss the recently released Bushfire Royal Commission report and the importance of Indigenous land management practices. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. All right. Thanks for having me, Priya. No worries at all. So before we get started, could you let listeners know a little bit about yourself and your areas of expertise? Yeah, sure. So as you said, I'm a Wiradjuri man. I'm a geographer at the University of Melbourne. My main research is looking at landscape change through time. So from you know, in order of millions of years to the last few uh, centuries to decades. I'll do that by uh, extracting cause out of the ground and these out of places where um, information accumulates through time. So say within lakes or bogs or swamps and things like that throughout every day, every year, you're having all sorts of information blowing around in the atmosphere, accumulating in these sites. 
the main thing that I'm looking at is pollen, because that's uh, reflective of vegetation, and charcoal, that's reflective of fires. And through extracting the sediment out of the ground and analysing the changes that you see throughout the core and dating them using radiometric techniques, radiocarbon and things like that, you can reconstruct landscape change through time over time periods that are essentially invisible to, say, contemporary ecologists or, or um, conservationists and people interested in landscape change. And this is really important when it comes to understanding the impact of uh, the British invasion on Australian landscapes, which occurred you know, 250 years ago and over the next, over the subsequent few decades after the initial invasion, there was a, a massive impact on the way that the Australian landscape was managed, a shift from Indigenous management through cultural burning and other methods to British management, which were imported a series of management paradigms, if you like, from, from continental Europe. Um, and quite often, the initial effects of this radical shift in the way the landscape was managed is, is invisible to contemporary ecologists and, and landscape investigators. Um, so this information is really one of the only sources, if not the only source, of data on what the actual impact was of the British invasion and what the landscape was like under Indigenous management. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, that area... Um, the area that you work in is so interesting because it brings together these sort of empirical scientific techniques. Um, and this is, you know, drawing on a range of different types of knowledges, as well as a more social scientific kind of background, um, looking at colonization as well. And I think this is really, really relevant in the context of the bushfire season that we had last year. And, you know, we're gearing up for um, another summer. So thinking about this report right now is really important. So Last Friday, the 30th of October, the Royal Commission into the National Natural Disaster Arrangements Report was made public. Uh, so for listeners who aren't familiar, this is the Bushfire Royal Commission. How did this Royal Commission arise and what were some of the key concerns raised by Aboriginal people more broadly and Aboriginal fire practitioners in particular? Yeah, it's a good set of questions. So first, how did it arise? I think, well, I mean, there's a worrying trend actually of, of um, Royal Commissions in this country, I think. Um, that are needed, but uh, to what degree are they a way of governments deferring or abdicating on their responsibility to actually do things you know, remains to be seen, depending on how many recommendations are actually implemented. And this is, it goes across all kinds of royal commissions. Um, there was recognition, though, with these Black Summer 2019-2020 fires, the sheer size of them, the fact they stretch from southeast Queensland right through to Victoria, which is unprecedented in the geological records, so the records that I work in, there are no, there's no equivalent fire of that spatial area that we've detected. Okay? The evidence may be out there, but there's been a lot of work going on over the last uh, few decades, and no fire that large has been recorded. So the sheer size of, of these fires warranted a national investigation. And the fact that they crossed state borders, there were issues between the ways that different states were handling and responding to the bushfires meant that there had to be a national investigation of the way that the, the nation or the Commonwealth responds to disasters like this. So that was kind of the um, catalyst for the Royal Commission. And we, a bunch of us, submitted um, testimonies to the Royal Commission on what Indigenous burning is, what cultural landscape management is, um, what it does in landscapes, 
some good examples of cultural burning that programs that are underway at the moment and how these areas fared in the in the fires and a whole lot of um, different facets of of governance and practicality of getting uh, cultural burning back into landscapes where particularly in the southeast there's a whole lot of private ownership uh, national park reserves all of these sorts of things that present different barriers and obstacles to getting uh, aboriginal people back on country and burning one of the key things though from all of my research and, and other people's research, um, and you can get out of books like uh, The Greatest Estate on Earth or, or Dark Emu, all sorts of um, lines of evidence point towards the fact that the landscape of Southeast Australia and Australia all over was radically different under Aboriginal management, under management through cultural burning. And the main difference is that landscapes were much more open, fuel loads were much lower. And part of the problem we're seeing now with the, the recent, over the last few decades, increase in catastrophic fires is climate change. But there's an underlying fact that fuel loads have been accumulating uh, since the removal of cultural burning uh, in the Southeast Australian forests. And that's directly contributing to the occurrence of these catastrophic wildfires. So these were some of the points that were raised in the Royal Commission um, on the day that the uh, Indigenous contributors to the to Royal Commission had their chance to speak. Yeah, and I think um, with this report, uh, it included 80 pretty wide-ranging recommendations, um, but I know that these had a couple of notable deficiencies, particularly with respect to Indigenous land management and fire knowledges. Um, so could you take us through a bit of an assessment of the recommendations and where you think they might fall short? Yeah, so out of the 80 um, recommendations, there were two that were centred around Indigenous land management. Now, they, like all recommendations in Royal Commissions, they are recommendations. So the language is, is sort of framed in that, you know, um, this should happen and this should happen. But they're often very directive. They're, they're very um, firm on what they think should happen, for example, in terms of resourcing um, aircraft support in putting out fires and all of these other methods really framed around um, battling fire, many of them, uh, which is uh, a bit of a false hope really in the continent of Australia. One of the problems I would argue in this landmass is that we have this misguided belief that we can actually fight and win a battle against fire. Um, we can't. You know, the, It's a futile attempt. If you look at all of our fire agencies, they're structured around paramilitary terms and that's embedded in the philosophy of, of fire management in this country is a battle with fire or fighting fire, you know, with fire brigades and paramilitary structures of organisation and containment lines and all of these sorts of things. Um, in a country where fire is integral, you know, the fire is always going to be an issue in this country and the way that to deal with fire in this country is to embrace fire and use fire. And the people who hold the, the most knowledge for this are Indigenous people. So the Indigenous recommendations or the recommendations around Indigenous land management were twofold. They, they implored that states, territories and local governments, not the Commonwealth, so there was a deflection of responsibility here, um, should uh, engage with 
traditional owners with Aboriginal communities and explore options of um, getting Indigenous management into the mix of um, approaches to, to land management to mitigate against the, the potential of catastrophic wildfires. Now, this is very soft language. Essentially, it allows or abdicates the Commonwealth from any responsibility, places it onto the states, territories and local governments to merely explore and engage with communities, not to actually implement or increase the amount of cultural burning occurring or ease the, the governance and um, policy obstructions that allow people to get back on country, be, be it in um, government-owned land or through private property, all of this sort of stuff. It was really soft language that didn't go far enough at all in facilitating and getting people to recognise the clear role that Indigenous burning has to lower landscape fuel loads, heal country. One of the, the myths is that Aboriginal people used to burn just to keep fuel loads low. That's, that's a myth. That was one of the purposes. But there's, Aboriginal cultural burning is wrapped up in a, a whole complex of, of purposes and that it's spiritual, economic, pragmatic, um, cultural, and one of the net effects of managing country with fire is lower landscape fuel loads. Another net effect is higher biodiversity. And another net effect is healthier people connecting with country. So the ability to extract just the fuel reduction component out of Indigenous burning is, is not possible. It's a cultural practice that has all sorts of uh, implications. But the biggest barrier we have is getting it taken seriously and being put on the map as a real um, alternative to the hazard reduction prescribed burning, which all fire chiefs uh, were quite openly admitted after the catastrophic fires of 2019-2020 that were ineffective in stopping these fires. What the problem is, is the whole forest estate has too much fuel in it. There's fuel all across the forest estate so the relatively small areas of prescribed burning around assets of, um, of high interest or, or life and property is really inconsequential when it comes to the amount of fuel that's been accumulating in these forests over the last 250 years. So I found it really disappointing. It was a, it was a failed opportunity. And the, what could happen at the government level, at the Commonwealth government level, is that there's a working on country program. One of the recommendations we made when we testified in the Royal Commission was to expand the National Working on Country Program, which supports Indigenous ranges across the country, but primarily in the north, where returning cultural burning to, to country has wrestled control back of fire and stopped these huge catastrophic wildfires that used to um, devastate the top end in the early 2000s and late 1990s. And these, are, these problems have virtually disappeared now under Aboriginal management. And the same thing can happen in the southeast. This is propped up by working on country ranger programs that provide an architecture, if you like, a set of resources that Indigenous communities can utilise to set up ranger programs, train rangers. It also creates a, a national network of mentorship so that people aren't starting from scratch. People can learn from each other's experiences um, in what works and what doesn't work in setting up ranger programs. And it allows local scale uh, community who know what's best for that country. Australia is a hugely diverse place. It goes from tropical rainforest to dry deserts to savannah to cool temperate rainforest. Each of these 
biomes, if you like, requires different kinds of fire management and that knowledge sits within local communities. So working on country allows a national architecture for local communities to phase into and it's a really effective means of um, re-implementing cultural burning across Australia. And that, was, that lies directly within the remit of the Commonwealth Government and there's a really big missed opportunity here. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, something that really resonated across what you were saying just now is the idea that, you know, it doesn't make any sense to really uh, devolve these um, particular responsibilities across various state level jurisdictions when really we're looking at a whole country level issue and also looking at knowledges that need to be shared and developed across the country as well. And I think um, something that I'd really like you to speak to before we wrap up is just thinking about the relationship, um, and you kind of touched on this a bit um, earlier on, but the relationship that this has to the significance of centering Indigenous self-determination and sovereignty when we think about um, land management practices, particularly considering that the, the recommendations in the report, you know, gesturing towards possible consultation, um, using that really soft language, doesn't really align with the sort of hard timelines that we see around climate change as well. Yeah, I mean, when it comes to climate change, Indigenous burning has a huge role to play. I mean, if you, simple fire science means that you, have, you, you need an ignition source, you need fuel, and that fuel needs to be in a condition to burn. Climate change plays in that, in that fuel um, condition. It dries out fuels. What we are often missing when we're thinking about catastrophic bushfires only in terms of a climate change issue is the fuel. You can't have fire without fuel, and that fuel is increasing because it's not being managed and because Aboriginal people aren't caring for country. And caring for country is, is a hugely important um, component of, of Aboriginal life. Not only are you... Well, country itself isn't just the environment. It is us. We are in country, and caring for country actually cares for us. And being able to practise your culture, care for country, you end up with healthier people, both mentally and physically, and you end up with healthier country. And this is one of the fundamental reasons where we have to um, uphold the right and work towards achieving the right for Aboriginal people to have self-determination on country and where they burn, when they burn, and work this in with existing frameworks. So I'm not saying that every single part of the country needs to be handed over to Indigenous people for cultural burning, I mean, that'd be great, but it's, it's got to be added into the toolkit where, where possible. And this really underpins then the, the push for Aboriginal people to have self-determination, to be recognised in this country, recognised for their knowledge, their, their role in managing this country. And one thing that is often short-sighted with all of these efforts is we think that, you know, these recommendations from these commissions and, and all of these sort of things, and we implement the, the recommendations and then the job's done. Well, it's not. We see that it's not. We have to embark on a lifelong, a permanent shift in the way that we think about the relationship this country has with fire. We have to, this cultural burning is not something we just do in between fire seasons or, you know, now just to stop another fire season. It's something that we need to do permanently. And then we start to address all sorts of things. You know, if you look in the central deserts or even in the top end, even in the southeast, country is more diverse when Aboriginal people are burning. Aboriginal people are healthier where um, cultural burning and Aboriginal people are managing landscapes. And that's something that we can, these, 
fires, and especially this last lot of fires, has inflicted significant trauma on all Australians. There's the huge biodiversity loss. There's the fear of, of living in a landscape that could essentially kill you um, because of these huge fires. These inflict massive trauma. So Connecting for Country is a way for all Australians to understand, embrace and love the country that they're on and work with what this place is. This isn't Europe. This is a place in which fire is your biggest friend. And it's not uh, an evil force, an uncontrollable part of nature. It is our greatest tool and our biggest friend. And used wisely, we can have healthy countries, low catastrophic wildfires, even moving into where there's uh, increased incidence of catastrophic fire weather because of climate change. We can really reduce risk and connect people back to country and increase the physical and mental health of all Australians, not just Aboriginal people. Absolutely. And I think that's a really beautiful way to wrap up. Um, gives us some hope for thinking about how we might move towards um, a future where these knowledges are centred, where there's a prioritisation of Indigenous people's relationship to country and not just looking to instrumentalize uh, cultural burning as, you know, a weapon in the, uh, you know, using that military language, a weapon in the arsenal of uh, the state to fight fires, but more thinking about it holistically. Um, so uh, just before we finish up, where can listeners find out a bit more about your work um, and learn a bit more about this issue? Um, yeah, so on the University of Melbourne website, if you just search my name, Michael Sean Fletcher, it comes up with all of my um, research outputs and, and interests. Uh, and there's a whole lot of work. I recommend people look up something called the Fire Sticks Alliance. Uh, it's an Aboriginal-led alliance of, and with, by Oliver Costello and Victor Stephenson, doing really, really amazing work. In spite of the obstacles placed by governments and all of these sorts of things, there's a community receptiveness and openness and want to re-engage um, traditional burning, cultural burning into landscapes, both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities. So this work's happening as a grassroots uh, organisation. I was really hoping this Bushfire Commission would plug that into a, a national architecture as well. If you look up uh, Fire Sticks Alliance or head to the University of Melbourne website and search my name, you'll, you'll find out uh, more about all of this. Definitely. And yeah, you know, uh, as you mentioned, there have been so many, so many royal commissions and um, various reports around bushfires, and we can only hope that change might happen, maybe not because of the recommendations within the report, but perhaps in spite of them. So uh, thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I really appreciate um, all of the knowledge that you shared, and I feel like I've learned a lot as well. Thank you very much. You just heard an interview with Michael Sean Fletcher, who's a Wiradjuri man and associate professor of geography, as well as the director of research at the Indigenous Knowledges Institute, which is based at the University of Melbourne. He joined us to discuss the recently released Bushfire Royal Commission report and the importance of Indigenous land management practices. You're listening to 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast, 8.55 a.m. And uh, thank you so much for listening to... Uh, our show. <laughs> so a bit of a rundown. First up, you heard a conversation that Rosie had with May Kostakis about the Philippines Australia Solidarity Network's upcoming event, Legitimising Repression, a discussion that looks at the Philippines Anti-Terrorism Act and the proposed ASIO Amendment Bill 2020. 
Then you hear a conversation that Priya has with Kristen O'Connell, spokesperson for the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, about the government's proposal for a job maker hiring credit. Um, and Kristen joins Priya to talk about some of its shortcomings. Then I have a conversation with Jim Marlowe, who is a journalist at Junkie and post-property journalist at Domain, to talk about housing in the pandemic. And then lastly, we just heard a conversation that Priya had with Michael Sean Fletcher, Wiradjuri man and Associate Professor of Geography and Director of Research at Indigenous Knowledges Institute at the University of Melbourne about the Bushfire Royal Commission report and the importance of land management practices. Thank you so much for joining us on 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. See you next week. And up next is Lost in Science. Bye. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Close.